the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Thessalonians. commends them for their growing faith in the Lord. That's verse 3. He commends them for their increasing love for one another. That's also verse 3. And he commends them for their perseverance through trials. So first thing first, he commends them for their growing faith in the Lord. How do you grow in your faith in the Lord? You grow in your faith in the Lord because of what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith isn't always easy. Sure, when life is going well and you see blessings all around, you believe God's in control and is working out His plan. But what about when life isn't as good? When you find that there's hurt and heartache in every moment, do you still trust God, who were commended on their faith? They weren't strangers to hardship, but they also knew God was working. They trusted Him no matter what. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 2 Thessalonians, so let me give you a little bit of background on the city of Thessalonica and then on the church of Thessalonica, which is not too different from our study of 1 Thessalonians. So as we come into 2 Thessalonians, a little bit about the city. Thessalonica, located in modern Greece, a population of around 200,000 plus in Paul's day, considered a very large city in first century AD, originally called Therma because of the hot springs that were found there. And the city was renamed after Alexander the Great's half-sister in 315 BC. Her name was Thessalonike. Today it is called Salonika, with a population of a little more than 300,000. And now a little bit about the Church of Thessalonica. It was founded by Paul around 51-52 AD. Acts chapters 17 and 18 record his second missionary journey when this church was planted. He was only there for three to four weeks. Then he left. So he birthed a church, very young church. Then he left and now he's writing a letter about a year later giving instruction to this young church. It was a mixed uh, population of Gentile and Jew, but it was mostly Gentile with some uh, Jewish believers present. Now, uh, in addition, this second letter here to the Thessalonians was written by Paul when he was in Corinth a few months after 1 Thessalonians, so the year is still around 52, 53 AD, 
And the main theme of this letter is, just like 1 Thessalonians, it's about the second coming of Christ. We're going to notice here in chapter 2 in particular that he spends a great deal of time talking about the Antichrist. It is one of the most lengthy sections of the New Testament as it relates to the Antichrist. So when we get to chapter 2, we're going to talk a little bit about the Antichrist. But here's the main purpose as an overview of why he wrote 2 Thessalonians. And again, he wrote it a couple of months after 1 Thessalonians because apparently, we're going to see here in chapter 2, there was circulating this false prophecy uh, and even a letter that some were saying this came from the Apostle Paul that basically said that the persecution that they were going through was the Great Tribulation and that they had missed the second coming of Christ. So Paul's going to come along and correct this false prophecy, this letter that's circulating in his name. Somebody has stolen Paul's identity, and so they, it, they've kind of signed his name to a letter. He's like, that's, that's not my letter. And, and so if you'll notice for just a quick glance at chapter 2, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, the second coming, and our being gathered to him, the rapture, We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And he says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in that way. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And he's going to go on later in chapter 2 to say there's a couple of things that have to happen first before Christ is going to come again. And the things that he tells us in chapter 2 that still have to happen still have to happen in our own day as well. So even though he's writing in the first century, some of these things are prophetic as it relates to the second coming of Christ and things that will be kind of the precursor to the Lord's second coming. So he wants to reassure the people of Thessalonica, listen, you haven't missed the second coming because they're going to experience, and we'll see here in chapter 1 in a moment, they are experiencing tremendous persecution and suffering from people who, who don't believe as they do in Christ. So now the early church is persecuted. They went through tremendous hardship, particularly under Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero was very depraved. He, he basically burned Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. In addition to that, he persecuted Christians by literally dipping them in tar while they were alive and lighting them as human torches in his garden. So that's Nero. That's first century. And Nero will be the one who will eventually behead Paul. So Paul will die at the hands of Nero. And there's such persecution now against Christians in the first century that all this persecution, some are saying, is the great tribulation. And and Paul's come along saying, Christ is coming again, but this ain't the great tribulation yet. Okay, you're going through suffering, you're going through hardships, you're going through persecution, no doubt about it, but this is not yet the second coming. You haven't missed the second coming of Christ. Here's a few things that have to happen before Christ comes again. So that's where we're going in this study here of 2 Thessalonians. Again, it is a book rich with biblical prophecy as it relates to the second coming of Christ. And this is somewhat of a corrective letter saying, don't believe all this nonsense that you're hearing and thinking as relates to your suffering and persecution. You haven't missed the second coming. He's even going to warn them in chapter 3, and don't get lazy. Some people have checked out. 
because they, they so believe that Christ is coming in their day or that they've missed it. Either way, they're like, we might as well quit our jobs and eat Twinkies because, you know, either, either we've missed it and so life isn't going to be good or he's coming soon, so why are we even working? And Paul's going to tell them in chapter 3, get a job. And he's going to say to them, if, if you don't work, a man who does not work shall not eat. So he's like, there's kind of a principle that goes hand in hand. If, if you want dinner, you've got to work for dinner. And so he's going to even challenge them about the way that they're living in chapter 3. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You'll notice that these guys here are traveling companions. Paul has left uh, Thessalonica. He's gone down to Athens where he separated from Silas and Timothy, his traveling companions. He's gone on now to Corinth which is where he's going to write this letter, and Silas and Timothy join, rejoin him there uh, in Corinth. So he's writing uh, on the behalf of the three of them, and he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church in your Bibles there, the New Testament written originally in Greek, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and uh, ekklesia is from two Greek words, ek meaning out, and kaleo meaning to call. The church is literally the called out ones. We are, we are to be called out from the rest of the world and the rest of the culture. Not to be stuck in the four walls of the church, to be still influential in our world and to engage our culture and to make a difference in our world. But we are called out once, literally. The church is to be people who are called out from the way that the rest of the world lives their lives. We are to be distinct in our world. We're to be called out from the culture, not just to be doing everything that everybody else does. We are to be uh, called unto Christ, called out from the world, and then sent back to the world to make an influence for his glory. But that's the real definition for church, ecclesia, the called out ones. To the church of the Thessalonians of God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's his common greeting, the twin sisters, grace and peace, grace and peace, charis, a familiar greeting to the, the Greeks and Romans. Peace, shalom, a familiar greeting to the Jews. So he's covering both Gentiles and Jews. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith, circle that word, is growing more and more, and the love, circle that word, every one of you has for each other is increasing. And therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance, circle that word, and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So there's that reference to the suffering and persecutions that they're going through. Now, Paul begins this letter here by commending them for three particular things. He commends them for their growing faith in the Lord. That's verse 3. He commends them for their increasing love for one another. That's also verse 3. And he commends them for their perseverance through trials. So first thing first, he commends them for their growing faith in the Lord. How do you grow in your faith in the Lord? You grow in your faith in the Lord because of what Romans ten seventeen says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're going through God's word. And the more you hear God's word, read God's word, get God's word into your heart, it has this natural effect where it will produce greater faith. You will grow in your faith, in your walk with God, in your relationship with him. By studying together God's word, you are growing in your faith. So he commends them for growing in their faith. He commends them for their increasing love for one another. How do you increase your love for one another? Well, Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give you. A new command, this is John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. Now, before I finish the rest of the passage, why is that a new command? That's a new command because he's, let me finish the rest of the, he goes, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a new command because before Jesus made that a new command, the highest degree of love that man knew was self-love. That's why in Leviticus, the command of the Old Testament was love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus comes along and he says, a new command I give you, because he raises the bar of love and he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he adds, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So it's a new command because now Christ is telling us, how do you love one another more? You love one another more by the way that you have received the love of Christ. So Jesus says, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. How much has the Lord loved you? When you stop and consider how much the Lord has loved you, that's the kind of love that he wants us to extend to others. Because in loving one another, it shows the rest of the world that we belong to him. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, when you love one another. So love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Love must be not just simply in words only, but in deeds expressed. We must demonstrate our love for one another. We must show our love for one another. We must tell each other how much we love one another. And he commends them for increasing their love for one another. And then he commends them also in verse 4 for their perseverance through trials. Now, the NIV that I'm reading from uses the word trials. If you have ESV translation, it uses the word afflictions. If you have New King James or King James, it uses the word tribulations. Now, it is small t. Again, this is not great tribulation, but this is trials, afflictions, and tribulations, small t. The word tribulation is from a Latin word, tribulum. A tribulum that the Romans used was this cart or this plank of wood, and on the underside had sharp metal teeth. And they would run the tribulum over wheat to separate the grain, back and forth, back and forth. So these sharp metal teeth would be used on the underside of a board to go back and forth on wheat to separate the grain. That's a picture of tribulation. Tribulum is where we get the English word tribulation from, that Latin word tribulum. So it's this picture of suffering, uh, trials, difficulties, hardship, And some of you can relate when you think of your own lives and some of the things you've gone through. You're like, yeah, it's kind of felt like a board with some teeth that has been plowing over my back, back and forth and back and forth. And some of the things that you've been going through. And Paul is commending them here for their perseverance in their tribulation. Trials will mature us. They are never pleasant, but they will mature us. And through other passages of Scripture, like Romans 5, 3 to 5, Paul reminds us, 
He says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our sufferings produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But he speaks there of how we grow in our maturity and it begins with suffering because it produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And so when tribulation comes and when it is met with perseverance, it brings maturity into our hearts and into our lives. Also, Paul would write in, or James would write in James 1, 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't know about you, but I've often prayed, Lord, grow me into maturity without letting me experience any trials or tribulation. Have any of you prayed something similar to that? It's like, Lord, I want to grow in my faith. I want to be deeper with you. But can you do it in an easy way? And there are times that God will grow us in our faith just, you know, through wonderful opportunities. But most of the growth that we will experience in our lives will come through persevering through difficulties. Because in the perseverance is when we can often see the hand of God that we don't often see when everything's going well. So it magnifies. Difficulties and trials have the opportunity to magnify the hand of God and his faithfulness in the midst of what we're going through. And then that gives us a deeper appreciation for who he is, a deeper love for who he is. And we draw near to him in a more you know, profound way. And it grows us in our faith. But I wish I could say that maturity will come in, in other ways. But uh, the Bible makes it pretty clear in various passages that most of the maturity we experience, and most of the growth, most of the strengthening of our faith happens through difficulties as we persevere. So that's, this is why I'm part he's encouraging them. He's like, you know, hang in there. Uh, Your perseverance through trials has been noted. Uh, Thank you for your perseverance. Thank you for, for enduring. And when Christians go through difficulties, it can sometimes cause us to question the goodness of God. I don't say that to shame anybody. I think that's often a normal reaction. Uh, Asaph in uh, Psalm 73 wrote a whole psalm basically about having confusion as to why it seems that uh, here he is trying to be a godly person and he's going through such hardship, but he looks around his world and he sees people who are ungodly and they seem to have it relatively easy. You ever played that game where you've looked at your life and you've thought, you know, Lord, I'm just trying to serve you. I'm just trying to love you. I'm just trying to honor you. Why is it that I'm going through this? Why is it this hardship, this trial? Why this divorce? Why this health issue? Why losing my job? When it seems like, you know, this, this numbskull that I work with seems to everything's firing on all cylinders. How come it's working out for him or for her and not for me? And we can get into this quandary and it can play a game in our head. And Asaph wrote Psalm 73, and I just want to read some of it to remind us the conclusion that he comes to. I know many of you are familiar with Psalm 73, but he gets through talking about all his observation when he looks at the world and he sees how so many people who don't know God or don't profess to follow God seem to have it so well. Why is it I don't? So this is what he writes in Psalm 73. 
He says, surely God is good to Israel. He says, I know it intellectually to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Now, this isn't, this isn't entirely true. I mean, sometimes when we're going through difficulties, you know, our perspective is often blurred. So we think everybody else has it well except ourselves. This is where Asaph is struggling because, you know, they have no struggles. The wicked, they just, they're doing fine. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They go around, you know, all proud. They clothe themselves with violence. And from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? You know, they're going around scoffing God, mocking God. They talk about heaven, but they're all about the earth, and they mock God. And so Asaph says, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. And he says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Asaph's questioning. He says, maybe my relationship with God is all in vain. You know, I've been putting my hope in him for nothing. Because I look and I see all the people who are wicked around me, and they seem to have it so well. And so he questions God, and he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I have talked In a certain way, I would have betrayed your children. He realizes, if I had said what I'm thinking, it wouldn't have been a good witness. So please, just as a word of encouragement, if you're going through a difficult time, it's okay to question God because God's a big God. He can take our questions, okay? All through the Psalms, David and other psalmists are questioning God like Asaph and just like, you know, why is this happening? Why is that happening? It's okay. God's a big God. He can take your questions. But please just don't talk out loud around other people because... You, you don't want to blow your witness and you don't want to disparage the character of God while you're sorting out your theology of why things are happening in your life. So Asaph realizes that. He says, if I had said thus, he says, I would have betrayed your children, Lord. He says, but when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. So I, I, I was just burdened by all this. Why God? And then the next verse, this is Psalm 73, 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. You know what he comes to the conclusion of? He realizes, he says, okay, when I'm looking at all of the stuff in my life and I'm comparing my life to other people who don't even profess to know God, and this is confusing to me, it's perplexing, it's burdensome, why God has all this happened to me, it doesn't seem to happen to other people. Okay, he says, but then when I stepped into the house of God, I got this heavenly eternal perspective and i realized that okay god is just and he's going to take care of the wicked and he's going to honor the righteous because of our relationship with him so i'm just going to hold on till the end and god's going to sort it all out you know friends listen that's not a cop-out to just say lord i'm some you're going to find sometimes you might be at a place like this in your life if you're not now lord i'm just going to hold on for dear life and i'm going to trust you're going to sort it all out in the end that's okay to say that 
That's where Asaph was. That's where he came to the conclusion. You've given me the right perspective when I come into the house of God. As I just start to worship you, Lord, then the right perspective and this eternal perspective comes into my heart, and I begin to realize it's all worth it, and it's all going to be worth it one day. I'm just going to hold on and stay true to you and trust that you're going to sort it all out. Now, I share that verse, that passage from Psalm 73, because that's basically the conclusion that Paul's going to come to here with the Thessalonians back here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because you'll notice now in verse 5, He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He says, God's going to sort this all out. You're going to be counted worthy. It's all going to be okay because of what Christ has done for you. So your suffering in the long run is going to all be okay because you're going to see, look at verse 6, that God is just. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection. As Pastor Gary Hammer teaches through the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or want to hear more like it, you can visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app by going to the Teachings tab under the menu at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once you're there, you can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be so happy to meet you and to get to know your story. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we encourage you to read over today's passage on your own. Once you do that, plan to join us for the next edition, where Pastor Gary will continue teaching from this New Testament letter, here on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.